0: welcome to the leaders edge podcast i'm sandy laycox editor-in-chief of leaders edge in this episode i talk with three experts in governance and directors and officers insurance dan siciliano is prior chairman and current vice chair of the board of the federal home loan bank of san francisco he's a codex fellow at stanford and co-founder and ceo of nickel deirdre martin is chief underwriting officer for management liability financial lines at sampo international and Joe Talmadge is Senior Vice President at Heffernan Insurance Brokers. We dive deep into the intersection of ESG and the DNO product line, discussing topics like where ESG disclosures will end up, how boards can prepare, where board diversity is going and much more. Give it a listen. All right, Joe, Dan, Deidre, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to have you here. We're gonna be discussing ESG, Um, other topics within climate, the social diversity part of it. Um, So very excited. Thank you all for joining me this morning. Our first question today is going to be around the litigation potential on ESG matters, as well as the backlash some companies are now receiving for ESG-related statements they've made. Dan, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Sure. Um, you know, there's good news and bad news here. I think the good news is that there's nothing particularly new going on. What I mean by that is the dynamics that lead to litigation, the problems that give rise to ongoing litigation, those haven't changed. Uh, so that's good. It's not some sort of new out of the blue sort of issue. But the bad news is that the various ways in which litigation is going to arise um, is now more. And and it's a simple formula, really. And the, and one of them is that. The more formalized disclosure that is required of a board, the more opportunity there is for some sort of problem in that disclosure. And that is one of the more important starting points for plaintiff's actions around anything that is litigation with the public board. And so, you know, climate disclosure has been radically or will be radically expanded. We don't quite know exactly how it'll land, but you're going to be talking about and sharing a lot more information. And that means there's a greater opportunity either for accidental or actual misrepresentation or other problems. So. There will be litigation. I don't think uh, we have to lose our minds about it. There's a lot of great best practices to avoid problems. And by the time you get to litigation, you've probably done a lot of other stuff wrong, which I think we'll talk more about. So (laughs) we avoid getting to that stage. I will point out just because there's another side to the story, kind of the anti-ESG political backlash Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that you get uh, a break on the other side of the litigation. Um, You're going to have to deal with both sides. So you have the kind of the backlash if you're subject to that, depending where you are and what industry, and you have the increased risk. So um, it is what it is. And I think directors are used to that. I think we just want to highlight how to avoid getting to that stage as best you can. Uh, And if you do get there, make sure you set yourself up well uh, to be defensible as best you can.
0: Do we think in addition to the environmental, because we see that a lot in the ESG realm, that's talked about a lot, Um, is it it the same for the S? Um, Are we seeing companies seeing any backlash in that area or is it mainly just environmental at this point?
1: This is Dan, I I can give one short answer. I'll I'll let maybe Joe jump in. I, I think you're gonna see more in the other areas. My sense is that it has been more environmental to this point. But that, I think, is just the beginning.
2: I know one element here, right, when we spend time with our clients is to also emphasize the S, because when we think about the way securities litigation has evolved in recent years, it used to be really contingent on how financial statements were interpreted or misstated. And then there came this event-driven category of securities litigation where headline events, um, non-securities triggers, but things that really arose out of social issues, safety being primarily one of them. When you think about the impacted party, the party who suffered a loss was not a shareholder. The party who's suffering a loss that predicated this shareholder claim had stakes that can involve fatalities, that can involve injuries. We've definitely seen where social has driven monetized um, loss that has been paid out under DNO policies for years. And then what we're also talking with clients about, while there's so much emphasis around the regulatory evolution of climate change disclosure and um, Dan emphasizing those points as we're watching those so carefully, you know, we think about environmental even broader. Like we think about the exposure that has come out of either safety or true environmental fine and penalty exposure, some of that very material to companies. Some of the exposure, again, causing injuries, fatalities, and again, being the, the underlying issue that prompts securities litigation.
0: Thank you. That's that's fascinating. And, and you see sort of those connections there. Um, what do we think that the climate, where will the climate disclosure requirements potentially end up? And then how can boards be prepared to address them?
1: So I think this one's for me. This is Dan. Uh, So that's a really hard question. I I think the honest answer is I don't think we have a good sense of where they're going to end up. I I think they're going to be tuned back a little bit. There's been quite uh, specific and focused commentary. A lot of the commentary points out that if you're trying to achieve better outcomes, this may not be the way to do it. It could backfire. So, So I think there's some material work that'll be done that might tune them up, pull them back a little bit. But that said, I think no matter what happens, how to make sure the board is prepared is the same answer, and and, and that answer is to make sure that the things that we take as best practices for boards are applying in these relevant areas. So the flow of information, the reportable, accountable information that flows either through audit or through a special committee, you know, setting up systems such that board members are in fact A, aware of the relevant data, B, understand, and this is the point of whether or not we'll see this rule part play out, understand the plan that the company has, both strategically and practically, to manage the direction of that data and what it means to do that and what the implications are, not just for climate, but for the overall performance of the company, both reputationally and practically, supply chain, etc. This is, I think, quite a heavy lift for boards if they haven't already been deeply immersed in this it is its own set of metrics kind of you know side by side with you know complex accounting metrics and boards need to really start working to get up to speed not to just receive them but to consume them and embed them strategically and in addition to compliance right so it's one thing to get it and say yeah look you thanks for reporting yep check 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 we, we approve, yay, we comply. That's great, but that's really not the bar. The bar is to take all of that and really wrap it into what it means strategically for the company and what it means for long-term performance. And that, frankly, that's hard. And, and I think that takes a little bit of a runway to get going. And so way before these rules land, board should already be engaged in this effort, sometimes with consultants to understand how best to pull that information in and really use it.
0: I know that um actually when we talk about we talk about ESG, we hear people talking about this cottage industry of vendors that has popped up to do that very thing, right? To just help boards. Is any thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I think Dan touched on that too in both of his his replies to your questions and really not knowing where the targeting will land, not knowing where the guidance will finally land, but being on this journey of making yourself defensible. So as a do you know underwriter we can appreciate what the clients are relaying in terms of the work they're doing to uh, purport to disclose what is material, but it is helpful to hear who they're working with as third parties, whether it be legal partners, consulting partners, software accounting uh, partners to kind of validate that the journey and the continuum of uh, materiality assessment.
3: Joe, Uh, just from a brokerage side, I think in hearing one of the criticisms from my clients is the the lack of sort of clear metrics and standards in and around the ESG topic. So I, I would I would second Deirdre's commentary about the quality of advisors that they have as being a relevant sort of data point that our underwriters will look at when they're talking with our clients.
1: Oh, and, okay. and I, I, this is Dan. I, and of course, I'm very focused on like the board function per se. And and so with that in mind, you know I think boards need to ask for help from this. Actually, thankfully there's a cottage industry and I think it's drawing on firms that have been placed for a long time and have had specialized subgroups. They're just kind of getting the attention maybe they deserved all along or growing. And boards need to engage with these organizations and ask management to do it for them to become better educated. And and I'll I'll give a very simple example. So if a board, if every board member does not understand the distinction between scope one, two, and three, greenhouse gas emissions, and how that maps to how they might be held accountable, what are you? Are you a retail vendor that sells products into the marketplace? That's gonna be a very different experience than if you are a data analytics company that is just B2B. And this difference between the scope of emissions, just understanding that is if you don't understand that well, then I would suggest that it's almost negligent to have any conversation. And so, and and there's no reason you should have understand understood that necessarily, depending what industry you were in. But now you need to. And so, boards getting up to speed by tapping tr- appropriate director education is critical. And the good news is there's lots of it all over. Like some of it's free. You can bring in consultants. You can pay for it. But you should do something to make sure you're all up to speed.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Sandy, if you don't mind, I'd Love to just tack on to Dan's point because I think he raised a really critical element here like at, again when we're thinking about the concept of who we're insuring on from a DNO policy perspective it's first and foremost that board in conjunction with the c-suite and while it is very nice to know the consulting parties that the board is working with at the end of the day when we think about defensibility we want to really understand the rigor that the board is um putting around board expertise and bringing in, if there's an exposure that's deemed, we're all using this term mission critical, but it came out of kind of some key decisions in derivative litigation. If there's an exposure that from an enterprise risk management perspective is going to be critical to how the company um, is able to conduct its operations, that the board is building its structure with the expertise embedded, not just relying on the consultant, but do they have an expert or a committee that's experts in in specializing in that um, exposure?
0: That's a great point. Um, Okay, we're going to move into a little bit back into that S space. Um, Given, uh, uh, first of all, give us the basics on the California bills, um, that were A B S, 826, AB 979, what the most recent rulings are on those. Um, and then in light of those rulings, how boards should be thinking about diversity.
1: So, you know, you can boil this down to something pretty straightforward, which is both, both bills, uh, 826 and 979, let's group them together as different types of diversity bills. So if you're headquartered in California, you're required to achieve certain types of diversity metrics on your board, either with women or people of color or combination. And let's put that in a box. And let me observe first. These bills were the tail of a train that left the station a long time ago, which is it is clearly the case that you get higher performing boards and ultimately better performing companies from higher performing boards if you have an appropriately diversified board. And that means different things to different people and there's no one size fits all, but we know that diverse boards do better. Among other things, they're less likely to be stale, they're more likely to be in touch with their customer base, et cetera, et cetera. So the bills represented you know, a, a, an acknowledgement of that and kind of a desire to accelerate that with California based companies they have basically been invalidated right so d- two different two different superior courts la across you know early may and then all the way through june basically ruled them unconstitutional and invalid the takeaway i think for boards however is that this was just a signal of what you should be doing anyway now the follow question is going to be <laughs> are they going to come back will they retailer them you know what will happen um I, it's very hard to predict but what i can't say with certainty is that the expectation in the governance community and in the institutional investor community, and ultimately, I think, in the broad consumer business markets, is that boards will be diverse. And so if your board doesn't meet the minimum standards of SB 826 or AB 979, I have a strong recommendation, which is you should be gunning for that anyway, as soon as you possibly can, because other forces and other attention will be paid if you don't. So ignore the California bills. Even if you're not in California, even if you don't think they'll ever come back, that is not the standard. The standard is diversify your board because you end up doing better. And we can get into that if you like, but there's a lot, it's now an old question that's been answered. There's a lot of great research that shows a diverse board does better, and it's not easy always to do. There's plenty of talent. That's not the hard part. But you know, spending time to get people onboarded. Sometimes it means you pull on people who weren't first directors already of a publicly traded company. There are some um, things you need to do to do it well. But those are all now done and practiced, and it can be achieved. This is
3: this is Joe uh, Dan. That's a great. Great background on that. I'm really happy that you covered that because I get it as a as a pretty regular question, particularly for pre-IPO companies who maybe don't have necessarily as diverse of a board as we would like to see, and uh, are looking at sort of diversifying that element of their of their company.
0: Okay, so let's talk about uh, DNO a little bit more and. We, we, Deidre mentioned a little bit of this, but is there more we can say, Joe and Deidre, around um, what DNO underwriters are looking at when they're evaluating policyholders on diversity?
2: I think I touched on a little bit here, where we're really trying to understand how the the company, via its again interaction of the board and with the C suite and the overall ERM function is making them self-defensible. Do we have an understanding that if there were to be some type of incident or escalation or headline risk event, and it is largely easy to think because ESG is such a wide term right now, it really, we talked about how the breath environmental can be. It's not just climate disclosure, it really is a lot of other triggers when you think about, you know, emissions and pollutions and sustainable procurement, but you know, and then social spans a huge agenda and governance also candidly, some of the largest DNO claim losses come out of governance breaches and lapses, whether that be around conflicts of interests or other. So for us, a critical part of underwriting and part of what we appreciate companies availing is that what's the interaction, and and Dan touched on this earlier, how is ERM interacting with internal audit and the audit committee? How is there escalation of incidents and understanding the process for that? You know, materiality, again, a lot of where we're trying to understand where climate change disclosure is going, evolves around a subjective concept of materiality and, you know, trying to understand how um, a board oversees what gets escalated to them as material and getting comfort with that. Because at the end of the day, we're going to trust that there is a control process in place that is going to make the company defensible. Like I wish I could say, there are some great resources out there and we are subscribing to a good number of the tools, but they are tools because there is not a predictor. There's not a rater that is going to say, yes, you are absolutely at a very high risk for being um, subject to a DNO securities claim, I mean candidly, there are some companies that have recently IPO'd or gone become public by via a DSPAC. I won't single out a certain industry, but one of them has been very heavily targeted with lawsuits, and they meet a lot of ESG uh, qualities that would make them a good ESG risk, but they're not necessarily proving themselves to be a good directors and officers insurance risk because of not having the maturity and perhaps the control environment at the time they're going public. Um, So I'll kind of pause there because I know there'll be some other really strong opinions and good opinions here as well.
3: Yeah. um, Deirdre, that's really fantastic insight. This is Joe, Sandy. Um, You know, I I've spoken with, with multiple, uh, DNO underwriters and and essentially you know what we are ensuring it is is effectively the G <laughs> like that is the Dno policy is the governance of the organization right and uh, and and to kind of harp on what Dan had alluded to earlier you know there's there's an, an evolution and, and some trends but ultimately these things have existed and I think that you know the the use of the term ESG honestly i've heard i i was in a in a in a group last week where one of the directors raised raised her hand and said can we just get rid of the ESG term i'm, I'm kind of tired of talking about it <laughs> <laughs> let's just talk about governing our companies well right um, so i think we're kind of at that place where you know when we present our executive team to underwriters and we start talking about the g the governance of, of the company and and uh what the company is doing in and around these matters um there is definitely a sniff test with regards to that happens with regards to the authenticity of of those individuals talking to our underwriters and being aware uh that our underwriters know uh you know what what is being sort of um presented as as ESG best in class versus implemented as uh, ESG best in class and really good governance. Um, They see a lot of companies uh, and have a pretty good uh, pretty good assessment of who is is authentic in their their efforts and doing the things that they need to do to to be a well governed company. I think in terms of the uh, coverage changes or, or other resources that are available, they are coming to the table. Dan mentioned something uh, earlier where he said if you're not aware of, of these things to even you know it's negligent to even have this discussion. I think it's a super relevant point point. and so you know our underwriters are investing in, in, in risk mitigation and loss control resources in and around ESG matters to educate, our clients so that they can become a better dno risk being aware of the things that they need to be aware of those are things that as a broker we're seeing our insurance carriers invest in to make sure that the individuals and the executives that they are insuring are are aware of the things that they need to be aware of in addition to that i think from a claim side you know they're updating their policy forms to uh, give some additional crisis uh, fund uh, coverage, um, delisting crisis coverage, um, trigger events for ESG-related events, uh, pollution crisis response uh, events. Um, all of these things are arising out of uh, the trends that we're seeing in the market, and are are to me relevant and specific to to what's what's going on here. Um, and I think positive developments for for our policyholders.
1: Okay. Sam, so can I sorry, I was going can I make a point which is sort of controversial, which might end up being a question on this. Is that okay? Just sure. To, absolutely. So, so so here's here's my observation about, and since I've got I've got Joe and Deirdre here, they have influence in this world. I, I might <laughs> and answer to your question about underwriting. So I think over time and hopefully in the next five to ten years, there will be a sort of money ball moment in board composition like so there's a lot of opinions about what makes a great board and how it works and we've gone from i think anecdotal and not very thoughtful to actually quite thoughtful but it's still sort of all out there, right? So some people say, oh, the gold standard is I want a sitting CEO to be on my board because, or I just I want a just retired, you know, um, audit partner from the big four because, right. And there's these thoughts, and they're all great thoughts, but I think someday soon someone's going to kind of boil it down and say, you know what? The data shows the following things. And here's here's my slightly controversial point on this, which is I think one of the most important attributes of Already qualified potential directors. So you have directors. Let's assume they're wonderfully qualified. The difference between really good directors performing well, really well, fantastically, in my mind, is their ability to dedicate the time. And this is a real, genuine constraint in everyday, you know, board function. And and I think like the thing that happens right before the crisis becomes fully emergent is oftentimes manageable if directors have the time if they were really engaged and so i just want to kind of throw that out there as a i know it's not a formal underwriting point at least i'm not aware of that i'd be curious if it is the ability of really talented highly qualified directors to dedicate the time at the board level i think is probably going to turn out to be over the next decade one of the most predictive salient attributes for performance of the governance function of boards, because it just increasingly takes so much time. And you can have a great director in every way, and if they don't have the time, I think they'll underperform a pretty good director who has the time. That's my opinion, and it's anecdotal so far, but we'll see if it develops into something more interesting.
3: This is Joe. Uh, Dan, I I love, love your sort of uh, commentary on that. There's, you know, in in my, uh, 20 plus years of brokering DNO, You've, we've seen multiple sort of trends. But when we run our data and we look, you know, even just probably about I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and we look at the pricing on DNO, I mean, it was kind of a joke. I I almost wondered, you know, are we even underwriting these deals right now? It's kind of you like just know what you're gonna get for a price, and it was pretty uneventful, right? And then 2018 came along, and things just went crazy and maybe even a little bit before that and and so now we're in this place where like you know we're quote-unquote underwriting and trying to look at risk and surcharging credit based on different factors whatever Deirdre again you may have a different opinion on this (laughs) but at some point I do feel like um you know the the insurance market goes through these fluctuations of looking really really deeply in underwriting uh when when there's problems and then they sort of back off, want to gain market share, maybe get a little bit looser on their underwriting standards. And and this ebb and flow in the insurance market in general uh, happens in DNO, it happens in many other lines as well. But um, I think, you know, to get to the the question of like, how are we underwriting these risks? um, There is a market function and there's more attention given to it at certain times in the market. The other trend that I'm seeing, which is uh, happening as we speak, is this uh, this accumulation of data and how we, we look at Ds and Os specifically. Um, there are tools, you know, that that rank Ds and Os based on their performance and you know give them a grade A, B, C, D. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're looking at these on the back end, if, whether the data is valid or not, because I've seen people with a really poor grade, they're actually really great, you know, directors and officers. And so, you know, how they're coming up with the data, how they're parsing that data, I think is evolving and the quality of and the application of it, I think is evolving. But what I do think will probably happen to your point, Dan, is there's going to be a point in time where insurance carriers look at the loss data, they map it, against all of these various metrics that right now are sort of in their early phases of being applied to risk. Um, And there's going to be a point in time where there'll be some really strong correlations uh, that can be extrapolated from this data. So I think that process is happening now. We are in a moment in time where it hasn't uh, evolved and gotten mature enough and we don't have enough time under our belts for this kind of data to be applied in the underwriting process in a meaningful and material way. But Dear Joe, you may have thoughts on that. Um, that's just my my opinion. I think we're we're going in that direction, but I, and and the the concept of being overboarded might come out of that process. Like what is that sort of flashpoint that we're seeing? Um, these things might come out uh, as time goes on and as the Internet of Things starts to contribute to the underwriting process. That's just my my opinion.
2: yeah, I, I think it's great provoked thought here. like as somebody who's always trying to hone, how we approach the insureds that we are um, underwriting. You know, I think Dan's point really resonates when we think about the fact that 220 targeting books and records demands are at kind of all time highs. So there seems to be, there'll be a natural correlation with how much time directors are spending on overseeing controls and risk by this, you know, how the proliferation of these 220s evolve and how much of those demands actually turn into Um, suited litigation or possibly, you know, we identify concurrent regulatory investigation alongside of it. And I think Joe is right. There's going to be the ebbs and flows. So as an underwriter, I'm watching 220s go up. I've got to dig in a little bit more and try and understand this. And maybe the questions I've been asking aren't the right questions. Maybe to Dan's question, we need to understand a little bit more about time dedication. We need to look a little bit closer about who's an active CEO dividing time versus who's a former regulator love seeing that love seeing a former regulator or uh, you know able to devote their time on a board and we are indeed seeing more of that so i think both of you raised really good points about how we can continue to hone um, our question set and our valuable time with our clients to understand their what, you know their investment in their board
0: so are underwriters adding in any new requirements at this time for coverage
2: I can answer. Uh, the diligence process is still, you know, to the points that all the, que- the just raised. Like it's it's evolving, and the question sets evolving. And what I'm seeing is partners like Joe really bringing forward and coaching the client on the the continuum of um, representatives to bring into the process. So maybe it's it's the head of privacy. It, it, if it's a very privacy centric company, it's really bringing, you know, Office of GC into Office of Treasurer and, and spanning the continuum of resources that we hear from that, that really truly help. Um, some of that might be demanded by underwriters, but sometimes I think it's really just the good partner in the broker identifying this and bringing it forward before you have to ask and anticipating what, what the question's going to be. Um, when I think about coverage and the kind of the implication of where this targeting is going on coverage, I would say, you know, spend time with your trusted broker partner on the type of investigation and inquiry coverage you have in your policy. And I think there is different options that could be available. You could be investing in more, but obviously, you know, that's a heightened backdrop and something you would want to make sure um, is aligned to your expectation in this heightened environment.
0: Do you all see or are you looking at from an underwriting perspective the board's preparedness or knowledge of cyber risk for a company and how is that playing into the g and their their ability to to avoid some of this potential litigation out there
3: I think we all have something to say about this Dan yeah. you can go Dan
1: too well, I'm going to go first okay so at a at a high level um clearly uh, cybersecurity issues are the issues, the, the topic that just keeps giving, right? It won't go <laughs> away. It doesn't deserve to go away because it's an escalating uh, genuine risk to not just the enterprise, but the reputation, the enterprise, the whole bit. So a couple thoughts. One, um, I think that the attention to the skill set of directors has always been at issue in the non-gov function, and, and we've kind of just spoke to it. And I think that you know cyber is now a presumed you know attribute that somebody on the board has to have. I would say that my anxiety there, well, one, that's a good trend overall. But I think it can be misimplemented or taken as a solution, which it isn't and in the following ways. So one, um, just because you have one really deep expert on the board, that does not a solution make for the board, right? It's great. It's better than not having anyone who's expert. but the whole board needs to speak the vocabulary of Infosec cybersecurity, cyber in general, and they need to understand it enough that they can manage the issues um, that arise around all the, you know, complex risk management as well as strategy. So I think the whole board has to be brought up to a level. And I most boards I think get that. And if someone is on a board and says, oh, I don't pay any attention to cyber, I don't understand that technical stuff, I don't think that's okay. That's kind of like saying I don't read balance sheets at all. Maybe you're not on audit, but you need to understand, you know, that. So that's the first thing. Second, I actually don't think that you should disqualify a set of candidates who you're looking at a spot for the board and you say, oh gosh, we only have one cybersecurity expert, let's get another one, we really need a cybersecurity expert. Cybersecurity expertise has a half-life, in my experience, of about three months. Like, if you are at the pinnacle of your career, you know, and you leave that and you're retired, like, every quarter that goes by, the cutting-edgeness of your knowledge is decreases by about half. And so, I would say that what you really need is a broad knowledge and the ability to tap the right experts as a board member. Boards can rely on third-party experts. And there's now a beautiful suite of options for expertise to be brought to bear at the board level. And I don't think boards should overweight cybersecurity expertise because it really isn't the solution on your board that you may think it is. I would rather everyone be brought up to a certain level and be able to ask good questions and then have at the ready substantial outside expertise that assists the board in making these evaluations. Sorry, that was a long answer to a short question, but I've obviously had some pent up opinion about that. There you go. <laughs> Joe, Deidre, I carried to
0: weigh in on this
3: one. <laughs> uh, Yeah. I mean, I almost forgot the question. Frankly,
2: Sorry. Cyber, cyber, cyber.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, as it relates to cyber, it's obviously relevant. It's a key thing. Um, I think, I do think actually, you know, um, to tie it back to the the sort of diversity point, um, uh, having a diverse background of business experiences does inform your, your network and resources and knowledge on, on cybersecurity risk, you know, somebody that's been in the tech industry versus the healthcare industry versus the food and agricultural industry versus the energy industry will all have very different opinions and backgrounds on cybersecurity risk. So I think you know it it does speak to you know how you're looking at your your candidates uh, coming onto the company, and and it is a it is a super relevant item, and I think it's important to think, at least from my perspective, in dealing with many companies over the years that. There are definitely very varying degrees and thoughts on on addressing cybersecurity risk in terms of how uh, board members might view it.
2: The only point I'd add, and Dan's point is very well made. Like, we do, of course, one of the check boxes is: is there evidenced expertise? Is there a cybersecurity and/or privacy expert on the board? Um, what are their credentials? But I think to the points you both just raised, there's layering there. And this is where we really have to look at that interplay with the very, the rigorous function within the company, within the C-suite, within the office that's built around cybersecurity. And one of the things we really try to understand is like, what's their connectivity to the regulators? Like who's their first phone call when there's a breach and understanding, you know, DOJ, SEC connection, you know, obviously that's another function where we like to see a lot of former regulators um, and that legal experience in there. Because again, when you're trying to de- when we've seen defensibility in DNO litigation that surrounds the cyber event, it's because that control process evidenced itself and the right connections at the appropriate timing and intervals were made um, to protect kind of the the breach escalation. So I don't know if either of you have opinions on that, but I think that's something we look for. Yeah the
3: the one other thing i'll say on that sandy um, just to, before since we're this is a sort of insurance audience um, there are products in the market that cyber insurance products that give uh dno coverage on the cyber program which was kind of weird to me when it first came out um, yeah. but it, it's actually really interesting because it it can also complicate a claim situation when you have dno underwriters wanting to uh, you know address the dno claim but then there's this random you know, cyber coverage or DNO coverage trigger that's sitting on your on your cyber policy. So I think a, a well-informed broker may want to look at that and understand how your c- cyber policy is or is not going to respond in a DNO claim. Understand how to navigate that in the claims process relative to the DNO underwriters. Um, so there's things that are happening in in the non-DNO market, you know, cyber market, tech ENO market that. That potentially could have some implications in how the DNO claims are adjusted. So that's just kind of a random product uh, trend that, that we've seen in the market.
0: I think that's a great point. That's a great point. I think there's definitely overlap that's happening there. That that's that's been interesting to to watch. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been a great lively conversation around DNO ESG and uh, where it's all potentially headed. And I really appreciate you all taking the time with me. Thanks for listening. That was Dan Siciliano, Deidre Martin, and Joe Talmadge discussing governance and d I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find more Leaders Edge podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, as well as leadersedge.com.